0: Welcome to Church 213. Our world is full of majestic wonders that people experience personally and then walk away being changed forever. Yet there is simply no greater wonder than Jesus. Once our eyes are fixed upon him, we can't unsee what was seen, so we begin to live differently. In this series, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, we'll look at what happens when Christ comes face to face with ordinary people, how they are changed still has the same majestic power today. We pray that as you would listen, you would turn your eyes upon Jesus. Thanks for listening. Good morning, church. I am uh, glad to be back in this pulpit right here. But feel like I've been uh, been prepared just to get after it. Uh, we're walking a little lighter today. I know Debbie is. I uh, have her whole family here. Uh, her dad, Pastor Danny, in the house, he pastors over at East Newton, and um, he taught me everything I know, but not everything he knows, there is a difference, you know what I'm saying? And of course, David there, and her brother Dwayne from the UK, so certainly, certainly thankful, thankful to be in this place, we can lift up the name of Jesus. Uh, I'm excited about where we're heading the next few weeks. I'm excited about it because I believe God is about to catch our attention and comfort some hearts. I mean, if we've seen nothing else this morning, it's that. I hope God has caught your attention and changed some hearts. Think about Gavin and Kinsley and Brendan. My goodness. I told Gavin, I said, hey, man, don't come out of that baptistry and shake your head like a dog. Because you, you will short everything that has electricity on it up here on this stage. But, uh, but I am I am excited about what God's going to do with those three. What can God do with a small group of sold-out people? He can change the world. Amen, church? He is an eye-catcher and a heart-changer. I've titled the new series, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. See, what, once you witness something of wonder, you know, there are seven wonders of the world, and on my bucket list is hopefully try to see most of those. But once you see something that just says, wow, once you see something that catches your attention, you can't unsee it. Have you ever seen something and said, that I I cannot unsee that. Once you see it, you can't can't unsee. You can't go back on the way life was because what you have put your eyes on. A few years back, we had the privilege of um, going to Jekyll Island and we took a tour through the historic district. And uh, that's my favorite barrier island. I mean, just something about the moss and the way, just the nostalgia. But as we were on that tour... I noticed that there was Faith Chapel. There was a chapel there um, in the historical district, and so we, we decided to swing by. And so we go, in the, we go in the Faith Chapel, and as I walk in, it's a small, small building, uh, not much bigger than, than probably this side of the room. But as I go in, I notice that there's this man and that's, that's attending the inside. They weren't having services. They didn't have attendance in any other place around the historical district. But when you walk in Faith Chapel, there's a guy standing there, and I thought, man, he's on guard of something. <laughs> and so as I, as I turn, I notice this brilliant stained glass in Faith Chapel. And I've seen stained glass before. uh served at a church, had beautiful stained glass. Many of you have, many of you have seen stained glass. But there was something about this one that brought wonder to my eyes, and it just, it just hit different, and as I stood there, the longer I looked at it, the more it kind of sucked me in, and I began to look at the brilliant colors, and then I looked at the very bottom of the stained glass, and it said, Louis C. Tiffany, 1921. Now, if you know anything about Tiffany, that's the same Tiffany New York who makes the very expensive T- Tiffany lamps. He made this stained glass, and I'm staring at it, and there's an inscription over it. It says, described as a vivid composition in rich tones, the window portrays the theme, David sets singers before the Lord. And so the, 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 the stained glass is David, and he's seated on this throne in this kingly garb, and he appears to uh, act of like in a commander, and he has all of these singers around him, and an angel overhead, over, overhead bears a scroll, and that scroll proclaims, I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. And that stained glass has elements of the, of the brightest red you'll ever see. There's even gold laced inside of that 24 karat. I'm like, oh, that's, that's why that guy's standing here. He's guarding this brilliance and this wonder. And in March of 21, on Good Friday, it was dedicated in that chapel in 1921 to be prepared there for the worshipers on Easter Sunday. And as I stood there, I asked the guy, I'm like, hey, what do you think that thing's worth? Without a doubt. I mean, never missed a beat. He said, it's priceless. It's priceless. Because when I saw it, it changed me. And if you come to me and say, hey, I'm going to go to Jekyll Island, what do I need to see? You need to go see that stained glass. Just by a show of hands, anybody seen that stained glass on Jekyll? All right, so after your church, all right, everybody else, we're all going to Jekyll. All right, we can be there in three hours. If you're really hungry, maybe a, maybe two and a half. You need to go. Was it brilliant? It was brilliant. It absolutely was. It's priceless. Because here's why seeing a master at work left an impression that changed me. And so what we're going to be doing the next few weeks is we're going to be watching a master at work. And my prayer is that's where people are changed only after coming face to face with the truth and the brilliance that is the Lord Jesus. And my prayer is that you would turn your face upon Jesus and He would open up the windows of our souls and the light would come flooding in, and we would leave living different. My heart is that we preach for a verdict. Are y'all with me? Preach for a verdict. And so the series is just that, turn your eyes upon Jesus. What does that accomplish in our life? When we turn our eyes upon Jesus, we ought to leave a little different. And so there's going to be consequences to when we turn our eyes upon Jesus according to situations in his word. And so the title of the message is Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus to Make Every Moment Count. Now, there's something in our lives that we all have in common. We all have in common. We all wish we had more of it. And we all struggle using it. It's why why drive throughs exist. It's the inspiration between... Uh, it's the inspiration for the, for the microwave oven, for, uh, for wrinkle cream. Pay at the pump. It's time. T-I-M-E. Anybody at the end of the week say, man, I wish I could just right click and insert about two more days. That's real life, isn't it? So if we're going to make every moment count, we have to learn how to use this time. And if you're honest, some of you said to yourself this morning, I don't, I don't really have time to come to church. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and admit that. But, 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 but with a crowd this size, it's likely. It's likely. Somebody said that, so I really don't have time to be here. And if you think about time, it's really an abstract word. It's hard to define. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's like love. It's like hate. It's, you know, it, it's an emotion. It's, it can mean so many different things in so many different contexts. But for the sake of the message, you guys write this down. This is just PR's definition of time. As we turn our eyes upon Jesus... I'm going to define it as this. It's a relative successive activities in a space that are moving in one fixed direction. Related successive activities in a space that's moving in one fixed direction. Like, well, PR, what practically, what, how, what does that look like? Think of an airplane. You know, you have you have passengers on a plane which seems to be in the air moving very slowly, but it covers... An extreme distance in one direction. Y'all with me? Time is like that. God is the creator of time. We see that in Genesis 1. He's outside of time and space, which means he created that reality for us. And everything he creates for us is a gift. On three, you guys say gift. One, two, three. It is. I don't know if we really think about time like that. Sometimes we feel like it's not a good gift when you're running around crazy, right? I don't I like to I like to be busy. I don't like to be in a rush. That's just the way I'm wired up. And 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 you, sometimes you think about the time that you have and it seems like it's working against you rather than for you. But gift is a time because God created it and he created it before the fall, which which we know that everything that was created before the fall, the word says, was good. Time is good because it's a gift. And like every other gift, everything that God gives us is out of His nature, which is benevolent. It's it's not a part of who He is. It is His nature. And so we know that time is good. It's a good gift. Scripture lays out for us some reasons, though, that we have to be very careful how we use God's precious gift of time so that we can make every moment count. You guys write this down. Here's some realities. Time doesn't stop, does it? Man, Man, they just roll through. They just roll through. Yogi Berra, a famous baseball player for the New York Yankees, said it like this. We're lost, but we're making great time. It just doesn't stop. God's Word reminds us of this church at, at Ephesus. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, pay careful attention then how, how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I was just talking to Gavin's family and this little precious baby. Even dad said, man, it's going to go by quick, isn't it? Man, just gone two months already just like that. Not only is it, it, it doesn't stop. It passes quickly. It passes quickly. Hey, if you're 18 or under, just stand up for me. Because you're 18 and under and you can't stand up. Okay. If you're 65 or older, just raise your hand. I'm not going to make you stand up. Oh No, 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 no. 18, yeah, yeah. I didn't tell you guys to sit down. All right, look. Listen, you may think time moves really... S- Really slow, but you in the back looking at these youngsters, it felt like yesterday, didn't it? Felt like yesterday. Charlie Boss, didn't it feel like yesterday? Oh, yeah. Thumbs up. You got it. Now you can be seated. It does. Psalm 90 tells us that our lives last 70 years or if we're strong, 80 years. Even the best of them are struggled and sorrow. Indeed, they pass quickly and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger? Your wrath matches the fear that is due you. You're accomplishing something with your time. So teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Be very careful how we use this precious gift. And because of that, God's Word goes on to tell us that it is a gift. So yeah, absolutely, it demands, it passes quickly and it doesn't stop, but it demands focus. We have to be focused on it, 2 Corinthians 4. It says, so we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. James 4, one of my favorites, says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you're like a vapor. It appears for a little while, then vanishes. But instead you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we'll do this and that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So it is to sin to know the good and yet do not do it. He said, be careful. It Demands focus. Demands focus. Here's the thing, it's pleasing to the Lord. Anytime you use the gift that God's given you appropriately, it pleases him. All good gifts come from him. And when we use them to bring glory back to him, it, it pleases him. So as caretakers, we got to be careful how we use the time. Are y'all with me? But we have a battle against that. You know, it. There, there is there is an opposition to every good gift that God gives you. So don't think for a minute that, that the enemy will not also battle for our time. One of Satan's greatest tactics against us is busyness. He might not be able to make you bad, but he will make you busy. If you're not careful, you'll slip into busyness. Our adversary, the Bible says, listen to this, comes disguised as an angel of light. A good thing in busyness. Listen, he's not coming to you dressed up in a red suit with a picked fork. No. He comes to you as everything you've ever wished for. So he'll wrap you up with busyness to get you distracted. And so we have to turn our eyes upon Jesus to make every moment count. Why? For what our souls need, not what our desires want. If the enemy can make you busy over the fleshly desires, then your thirst will dry up. Your soul will dry up and become thirsty. That's why the Bible says we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness and then that one will be filled. Not the one that's just busy using the gift to chase things that are temporary. You guys write this down. I get it often, Pastor, how do I have a fulfilled life? What's God's will for my life? What's God's purpose for my life? The most fulfilled lives are not the busiest lives. Y'all, we're in America, so we have to fight it. Trapped in that. Pragmatism. Pragmatism. So, what, it, what is it? it? It's the lives that have breathing room for malnourished souls to hunger and thirst for the sweet stillness of the Creator. Some of you guys came in this morning wore out. Your souls are thirsty. You're busy, but you're thirsty. You're active, but you're hungry hanging on, you're stressed out, doing lots of stuff, but never feeling fulfilled. Listen, that's not the life that God created you to live. The divine took upon flesh, stepped into our world in situations of real life to help us redeem the time and make every moment count. It's a vapor. It's a vapor. Let's stand together. Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at a Uh, A famous passage of scripture that many of us are familiar with. But I don't want you to miss what God wants to do in a faithful movement of himself just because something's familiar. okay? Don't miss something just because it's familiar because I promise you this word is fresh. It's fresh. Luke chapter 10. starting in verse 38. It says, While they were traveling, they, meeting Jesus and the the gang, they entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Verse 39, She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came up and Asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You're worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice. And it will not be taken from her. Let's pray together, church. Father, today we have made the right choice to simply sit under the authority of your word and to proclaim your faithfulness, Lord. We have made the right choice. I praise you for so many in here that have prioritized you and your way and your calling on our lives. And God, I pray that the next few minutes you would turn our hearts to you as we turn our eyes upon your word. God, work in us, shape us, mold us, lift us up, guide us through, make us what we cannot be, Lord, unless you do it in our lives. So we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Time's moving quickly. Hey, let me give you some background. Here's what's going on here. The gospel writers didn't just throw a bunch of stories on paper. Okay? It's very methodical. Every one of them writes for a specific purpose. Taking the reader into who Christ is in different perspectives, okay? But it wasn't a hodgepodge situation. And so what Luke is doing right here is he's making a shift in his gospel in the narrative. The story sets the stage for the last phase of Jesus' ministry. It could be like a hinge point of sorts. It's a hinge point between his Galilean ministry... So everything before Luke chapter 10, this is where Jesus is proving his divinity. He's proving his authority. He's proving his power. He's moving in the mountains around Capernaum, you know, all that area. And what he's doing now, he's transitioning toward the triumphant entry to to Passion Week. He's moving south. He's, he's preparing the work on earth is almost done. Jesus is traveling right here from Luke 10 on a lot in Judea, which is in the southern part around where uh, Jerusalem is. And what he's doing in this last push to the cross was he's already, he, he's already proven who, who he was. See, you can't follow unless you get a good look at who it is that's leading you, right? You have been following somebody and not sure exactly what the car looked like, and you, then you get lost on the interstate, and you're not sure what's going on. So what Jesus has been doing is he's been making it very clear who he was, and now he's making this shift. He's saying, okay, now that you know, now that you've seen, this is how you follow, this is how you to it, live it out, the expectations of a follower. The beautiful thing is uh, only Luke places this in his gospel. It's not found in any other synoptics. And what we see is it's an encounter with two ordinary sisters who would turn their eyes upon Jesus. God in the flesh. And it takes place in a family that, that's a lot like ours. I live in a real family. You know? It, 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 stuff happens in, in, in the Wyatt House. Y'all, it's like a zoo cruise sometimes. My kids would say, Dad, is this going to be a sermon illustration? I'm like, well, Probably. You know, I got to be focused. But it happens. I call them ordinary because two things. One, their family's probably middle class at best. They face some dysfunction like any normal family. I've learned from watching Emma and Sadie that the most complicated hood that's ever existed is sisterhood. I cannot understand it. So this sisterhood situation is there. This could have been our home any day of the week. Inviting guests to be a part of a family dinner time. There was probably some quick laundry room stuffing going on. Everybody have that one room that you just stuff stuff in. Come on, don't leave me hanging out here like y'all are some super spiritual. Everybody's got that room, you know. Like, don't, hey y'all, don't let them go in there. Right? And what we see is Jesus and his disciples, they arrive in this little town. Luke doesn't list it, but we know because of good Bible study, if you do some cross-referencing, some studying, that John says this was Bethany, which was a small town about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And so they make their way inside of this home, and there Martha opens up her home to Jesus. She turns her eyes to him, and he captures her heart, and he changes her life on his way to the cross. And Jesus is teaching believers how to make every moment count. How does he do it? Well, what we're going to see is, is this first thing y'all, y'all write this down from the text. Our identity must be in Christ alone. Our identity must be in Christ alone. Our identity must be in Christ. Alone. And that's, so, that's so, so much easier to do in other parts of the world, you guys, because American Christianity has so many distractions that can, that can cause you to put your faith in that, that you overlook your need for Jesus. But listen, God never uses anything that doesn't come to him broken first because it requires full dependency. Our identity... What gives us purpose, what gives us excitement, what gives us, what gives us value has to be in Christ alone. And so Jesus steps right into Martha's house and, and, and she turns her eyes upon him. Look at verse 38. It says, while they were traveling. Jesus is always on the move, isn't he? So many times says as he was going. It's always going, always moving. As they were traveling, he entered a village and a, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. There's a lot of meat right there. He, she welcomed him into her space. The Bible says he met a woman named Martha. This was the first time that he'd ever met her because it refers to her as woman. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. There's other experiences in the New Testament, the Gospels, where Lazarus you know, was raised from the dead. But they were friends. But this friendship budded right here in Luke chapter 10. This was the first time. Martha's an Aramaic name that means mistress. In the first century, that basically means she was boss of the house. She was, she was ahead of the household. And so because of her role, she was excited to have him just walk right in there. She, it says that she welcomed him. She wasn't embarrassed. She wasn't caught off guard to have this highly prized guest in her space. You see where her identity is being shaped? I don't know. There's possible reasons she, she wasn't afraid to open her door Maybe, maybe the decor was a little better. Maybe the house was a little better. Maybe, maybe she knew the smell of a meal would impress Jesus. Maybe she was known for being the hostess with the mostess in this small little village. But whatever the reason, she, she seems to feel right at home. She, she, feels to, she, she seems to feel at her best in this role. And she welcomed him. This was her time to shine with her gifts and with her abilities. But, y'all, it's not necessarily a bad thing if it's not misplaced. When we know from Romans 12, God gives us all special abilities and talents. We all have different skills that we bring to the gospel table. That's the beautiful part about a faith family. Surround your people with, surround yourself with people that have other skills that you don't, and just cheer them on. They cheer you on, and before you know it, you've done something magnificent for the gospel. And so we see that happening. Martha, though, was, was confident in her home, but her devotion was divided. And that's where Jesus steps right in. She was distracted with the kettle in the kitchen instead of the king in the den. Amen. And so Jesus steps right into that. Whether she could see it or not. Her allegiance was in the decor. Her allegiance was in the dinner. And her identity was in her abilities in Jesus Was there to draw her eyes on him. The problem with Martha is not her serving. But rather that she was worried and distracted. The Greek word translated distracted in verse 40. Simply means. A connotation of being pulled or dragged. In a different direction. There's some some meat there in that word. If you think about it. Jesus steps into it. She was distracted, which means the word used. She was she was she was to to draw around, to draw away, to distract, to be driven out mentally, to be distracted, to be over occupied about a thing. You see, so it wasn't that she was it wasn't that what she was doing. It was the it was the overt distraction that it was drawing in her life. What she was doing was a good thing. The motive behind it was causing the distractions, always a matter of the heart, isn't it? And what happened? She was so pulled away, she was so overoccupied that she left no room for the most important aspect of hospitality, which was gracious attention to the guest, which was the king in the den. Jesus was in. Are y'all with me? Jesus was in the house. and She's in the kitchen. In fact, she breaks all the rules of hospitality. Martha, Martha even goes on and, and to accuse Jesus of not caring about her. It says, Lord, do you not care? Let's read it together. I know she didn't. While they were traveling, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. So yeah, come on in. This is, this is it. This is my chance. And she had a sister named Mary who, was also, who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, do you not care? And my sister has left me to serve alone, so tell her to give me a hand. And how many times do we get caught up in life? And before we know it, we have called the Lord on the carpet. God, do you not know? Do you, have you not heard? Do you not see me? I'm telling you, God sees you. God is always about drawing you back to his heart. She's there. And what does she try to do? She tries to embarrass her sister in front of the guest. Another of hospitality don't do that you put on a happy face even if you've been you know battling it out when the guest is in the house everything is perfect right hey here's a marriage tip guys all right you can trust me i got the limp to prove it all right listen if you're having intense fellowship we don't fight we have intense fellowship if you're having intense fellowship with your wife in public don't ask somebody else around you what they think of the situation Okay. Take me at my word. (laughs) Depression. Listen, anxiety and worry. They're setting in and, and Jesus is right there to calm her. What he's saying is Martha, turn your eyes on me. It's okay. Relax. Relax. Breathe. You don't have to do all this for me. For me to love you, for you to be successful, I made you. I gave you these gifts. See, our talents and passions, and this could change a life this morning, is not who you are at the core. What you're good at to get a paycheck is not who you are at the core. Your abilities, they're, they're not going to fulfill your soul. And so they're not to take priority in our schedules because they're not the giver of life. From a young age, we've told our kids when we say, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? The question that I'm not asking is, what do you want to do to get a paycheck? What do you want to be? I want them to hear them say, I want to be faithful. I want to be dependable. I want to be honest. I tell the kids, I don't expect you to be perfect. I expect you to be honest. I want you to be hardworking. I want you to be trustworthy. I want you to be humble. And then, y'all, whatever you do with your talents, you will succeed at and you will find purpose in and God will honor it because that's who we are at the core. It's the giver, not the gift if we start to think of our identity is found in what we're good at. So our purpose and our hope for wholesomeness and success is ultimately found in the Savior's feet. If you want to get up and go do something great, you've got to have a life that lives at His feet. I told you, in God's economy, what? The math is what? It's different. If you want to be great, if you want to get high, if if you want to go far, you've got to get low. You have to get humble. And if you're walking with Him, He's pleased no matter the level of worldly success you hope to achieve. So what I'm saying. Parents, relax. Just take your kids to Jesus. Breathe. Bring them to Christ. Relax. Then they'll have everything they need for the future. Debbie and I purposed a long time ago in our hearts, many years ago, that with Parker, we weren't going to chase scholarships if I had to neglect the Savior to seal the deal. It just wasn't worth it. If it happened, great. If it got a look, great. If you got an offer, great. But at what extent am I sowing and I'm reaping? So just live, live the Lord. Matthew 6, 33 says, seek ye first, what? The kingdom. And then what? His righteousness. Everything else will work out. For our good and for his glory. And So the gift that God had given Martha to be successful was actually distracting her from worshiping the Lord Jesus. And she began to dangerously live that her identity was the sister that found purpose in keeping the house. And because of that, something was dying inside of her. And the king. Step right into that. Man, isn't he tender? The king knew she was distracted with the kettle, and he was drawing her back into the living room. The potter and the clay. She was focused on what was cooking on the stove, but he was, he was worried about what he's trying to cook in her. And she met her there. One day, a guy came to the pastor during an invitation. He said, Pastor, I was making $40,000 a year a couple years ago. I was giving generously to the Lord. I felt so alive. I had time for his voice. But now I'm making $100,000, and I just don't seem to have that same peace. Will you pray for me, Pastor? Pastor said, absolutely, brother. Put his arms around him. He said, dear Lord, take 50000 from this man right now. Guy <laughs> never came back to church. He never saw him again. <laughs> So what was Jesus doing? He was turning her eyes upon him, made the point to her and the disciples that what makes us valuable wasn't what we have to offer, but what God was offering her in that moment. And Jesus dropped by the house this day to take the wrappings off of her heart. Church, our identity has to be in Christ alone. Amen. What does that lead us? Well, the text goes on, our worship must overpower our work. That's where it leads us. Our worship must overpower our work. So we get this second character that gets brought in right here. While they were traveling, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister named Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? See, sometimes Mary gets a bad rap that she's lazy, that she was neglecting her responsibilities. No, she was with Martha. They were probably preparing for this guest together. But when the guest arrived, her priorities changed. You see that? She said, she left me to do this alone. So tell her to give me a hand. Tell her to get out from the king in the the living room and get back into the kitchen where she was before you came in. And the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice. And it will not be taken away from her. That's good stuff. We get together at Martha's house. They were normal. But this is different. Because the king is in the house. The truth is flesh in the house. God was speaking. It says among those listening was Mary. And she she becomes a central figure. And we see that she sat at his feet. The scripture says, which was a typical posture of disciples. That's what they would do. So what we see right here is this was a position of a learner. So yes, she was living the responsibilities. Y'all with me over here? As get as a house guest, getting ready to, to be hospitable. But in that moment, she went, she understood the role of her task. That yes, she had a responsibility, but her greatest responsibility was as a disciple, as a learner. And so she's seated there. And then when Martha irritated that she was left to do the work herself, she asked the Lord to get Mary into the kitchen. Basically, you see these two sisters arguing. I told you they were normal. It's just an ordinary, it's just an ordinary home. But what we see is Mary was going to get her worship home before she jumped into her work. Mary's worship overpowered her work. But as I was reading through this, just try to think about the reality is. The reality is this. You ever thought this? If I don't do it, it's not going to get done. I mean, somebody's got to get the work done. So what is it saying right here for Martha? To Martha's defense, things had to get done, plain and simple. Mom, sometimes you just can't stop, right? The house would fall apart. I know ours would. Debbie's the chaos coordinator. She's good at it. Martha had to get the dinner ready. She had to get the stove fired up. She had to set the table. If you think about it, I don't want you to miss it. Where where would the church be without Martha's? I'm talking about those faithful people who perform the task of hospitality and service. That's so vital in making a church a welcoming and well-functioning community. Scripture tells us that God is a God of order. We talk about the bodies, pieces being in order. So is the Bible saying in this moment that we should abandon responsibilities? No, we have responsibilities. What it's saying is if all of our activities leave us no time to be still in the Lord's presence and hear God's word, we're going to end up serving not out of the overflow, but out of the obligation, which is really dry. Where does dry obligation take you? It robs your peace, robs your joy, it robs your excitement robs your power. And you end up coming to church going, I don't have time for this. I have other stuff that I need to do. That, that's the point. Not that we neglect our responsibilities. Work has to be done. The point is that doing right is not to, 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 to override being right, if you could sum it up. Being right in His presence is far more important than getting it right. Because if you're, if you're at His feet... And you get up from that place. Whatever you do is for his glory and it will be right. I tell our staff, I'm like, listen, we're going to pray and we're going to plan. and We're going to promote. The Bible says the horse is prepared for battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. We're going to do our very best to cross every T and to dot every I. And whatever happens, we know that it's of God. We don't want to bring a spotted lamb to worship. And so there's a lot of effort that goes on back there. We check this. We check the water. Do all this. Because we know that all things, like Pastor Joe said, is going to work to bring him glory. We don't want to leave anything untied and undone. Because he deserves the highest of praise. See, trying to serve God without being nourished by God's word is you're like expecting to get some good food off the tree, but it's not rooted in anything substantial. <laughs> and so before we can represent Christ as we should, we have to take time to be holy. The Bible says, be busy because I am busy. No, it doesn't say that. It says, be holy for I am holy. Because the reality is, activity is, Never translates to godliness. You can be very active here and still be very disconnected from the power of God. Because activity does not translate to godliness. It's sitting at his feet. Even genuine believers can lose their focus on what really matters. And unlike her sister, Martha was distracted from hearing the Lord's teaching, preoccupied with the task. So making every moment count, listen, it means our services, it means our schedules and our work comes after we worship in light of all that God is and all that God does. Holy, just, loving, immutable, all-knowing. We work in light of that. Y'all with me? I saw a little Facebook meme that said something like, um, you guys never know stress like trying to hold a flashlight for your dad Or something like that. You know what I'm saying. Parker's lived that life. (laughs) But what we're doing is we're working in that light. And if you serve in the Lord, you're working in the light of who He is. All of those things. That's why doctrine and theology is important. Who is God? And we work in that light. And because we work in that light, we work through that light. And so we operate and we do everything that we do. Because of all that He is. And that brings peace and comfort in our work. Psalm 119 says this. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. I have solemnly sworn to keep your righteous judgments. The light, we're walking in those lights. I am severely afflicted, Lord. Give me life according to your word. Lord, please accept my free will offering of praise and teach me your judgment. Walking in your word. My life is constantly in danger, yet I do not forget your word. You take him at his word. What does that mean for us? You guys write this down. Worship, therefore, is our identity before it becomes our activity. Worship. Is who we are, not just something we do. Y'all with me? I like to define worship as where revelation meets response. It's not just on Sunday morning from 10 to noon. This is something that we do. My prayer is this is who we are. We go out on Monday and our identity is worship and that leads us to live that activity out. As a pastor, I love to watch you be active for the Lord. Random acts of kindness. And I've been a recipient of that a couple of times. It was a just the sweetest little note hanging on my door this morning. I love to see what God's doing. I love to hear testimonies of those random acts of kindness that you're active. But what I love to see more than your name on a volunteer list or a random acts of kindness board, or you sitting right here in worship, is for you just to be living your life out with an open heart that is tender to the Lord's voice. That's what gets us going. That it's real, right? It's not an activity. It is your identity. See, here's the thing. you can't greet effectively out there unless you make it a priority to be in here first. You can't, you can't deliver cookies to visitors unless you're getting fed on the bread of life yourself. You're serving out of the overflow. You can't teach with power. you can't serve with compassion. You can't play with peace or, or preach with conviction unless we follow at his feet first, because we all live after something. I had a chance to be a part of the service. For Debbie's grandmother Friday, and um, as she was going through the last stages of her life, we came across some little notes that she had written in her own handwriting. And one of those just simply said, "I'm drinking. I'm drinking from my saucer because my cup overfloweth." That's a that's an old school thing, drinking from a saucer. Now, and if, if 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 I purposely overfill my coffee cup at the house and it my kids are like, Daddy, you all right? But my grandmother, she would overfill her coffee cup, and she would drink it out of the saucer. She would walk. I remember it as a kid. she would, And she had muscular dystrophy, and so she, she was already kind of unstable. She had braces on her legs at a young age, and, and she would walk from the kitchen to the living room holding her saucer, trying not to spill it. And as a kid, I'm thinking, Nanny, if you wouldn't... Pour too much in the cup. It's all in the saucer. I wouldn't have to watch you struggle, but I realize there's just something special about that overflow. Drink from my saucer because my cup overfloweth. Y'all, we live a life, not as activity and business, but we live a life that just overflows in His goodness. Oh, man. Not only do you get to drink the sweetness of that, there's plenty to go around. Right? But I'm afraid we've taken our responsibilities too far and we've added too many things to our calendars. The hustle. And that's pulled us slowly away from the things that truly matter to the Lord. Why is it that we, that we know our calendars are full, yet we take on something else anyway, just in case worship's not enough? That's really it. Is your worship enough? I'm saying, yeah, it, it is enough to equip you for the day. And when it comes to responsibilities, especially as young families, you know, some of you guys are in very busy seasons, take a good, hard look at your calendar. Why am I doing what I'm doing? How is this? What am I chasing? You know, Pastor Danny Cedars, there are other ministers in the, in the room and he would contest the same thing that people don't stop coming to church automatically, do they? It's, it's a slow fade. Many times it's because there's extra responsibilities, extracurricular activities, chasing something that might happen in my child's life, five, six, seven years, ten years. Man, if I don't pour all into this now, this might not happen for them in a worldly chase for something. But there's a 100% chance they're going to stand before the king one day. And all that's asked is... Have you prioritized me? Have you sought me first in my righteousness? See, most dads and moms don't wake up one day and go, Man, I miss my kids. They're grown and gone. It happens little by little. It's where we let Christ take our hearts and then our eyes make all the difference. As are closed. just think about this. Where, where's your eyes taking you today? Where, where are you turning your eyes and I implore you, turn your eyes upon Jesus. One of the most famous hymns out there is just that. It's turn your eyes upon Jesus. The hymn was written in 1922. It was written by Helen Limmel. But Helen wrote the most famous, one of the most famous hymns, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, after a lady named Lila Trotter. Lila's Trotter was from England. She was a very brilliant artist. God God grabbed her eyes and set her heart toward missions. And she tried to raise support, Trotter did, for missions, but nobody would support her. You know what she did? She just plowed ahead herself. And she went to Algeria, Africa, and she began to do missions. And after, in the middle of this 40 years of, of mission work, she wrote a famous poem. It was just called Focused. And later, Helen came upon Miss Trotter's poem, and then she pinned the words to the famous hymn Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And I want you to know if, if, if Lilas Trotter's one yes to, to surrender all for Jesus and live 40 years in the hiddenness of the desert had no other impact than to lead one to write this song. So that we will put our full attention upon the face of Jesus over a hundred years later, I'd say it was worth it, wouldn't you? Let me read these to you and then we're done. Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior, life more abundant and free. So turn your eyes upon Jesus, look in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full at his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. Well, there's light for a look at the Savior, life more abundant and free. So turn your eyes on Jesus, church, and look at His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of His glory and His grace. Let's stand together. Hey, a praise team coming. We're going to close out in a song of invitation. And here's my invitation to you. What's your yes to Jesus? Where is he turning you to look this morning? Because I'm convinced we all have a new place to look in light of his glory and grace. Amen. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Hey, maybe it's, a, maybe it's as simple as a decision that these guys have made You don't have a relationship with Christ, and you know without a shadow of a doubt that He is turning your eyes to Him to be Lord and Savior once and for all. Maybe you're like Gavin. Maybe it's been heavy on your heart. You're like, this morning is is the morning that I am finally fixing my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. Say, I'm going to be right here. Let's have a gospel conversation. Hey, maybe it's like Brendan. Maybe you made a decision earlier, and it wasn't real. You thought it was. She had no idea what God was really about, what He was calling you to, and you want to again nail down your salvation to have a gospel conversation. We won't drain the pool. Hey, we'll keep it. Amen. Maybe it's like, maybe it's like Martha. You just wore out. You came in here weary because you're running after the things of the world, and your soul is so thirsty. You simply want to bow the altar this morning and say, Lord, make me a Mary every morning. So that can be all that you've called me to be. Lord, forgive me for being distracted and pulled away by the things of the world. Let's pray, God, you're thank, God, I thank you that you're faithful over our lives this morning. Father, we've experienced it. The homegoing service of Granny, Lord, 87 years, but yet like a vapor. She ran such a good race. While she was busy, she was focused on you, Lord. Her heart set such a magnificent example for our family. What it means to be hospitable, but a worshiper first. Father, for Brother Larry, who's sitting in your presence now, Lord, his long battle is over. But like a vapor, it's gone. Yet he didn't just leave a legacy, he lived one for your glory and grace and the things indeed of this world has grown strangely dim but he's standing in your presence seeing your glory in full Lord I can only imagine what's going on Father thank you for the way you orchestrate your word around our lives Lord every person in here you are after us we may turn our eyes on you in a fresh way Lord that we, we experience it and we live it out. God, help us to live differently because of where our eyes are fixed. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. God, if there's one in here that's just weary. God, I pray that this will be the moment they would find rest at your feet. Have your way, Lord. We love you. Pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said. Church, let's sing together.